Let's talk about a topic we've we've mentioned many times in the show, and we'll now do so again, which is the fact that it is a giant national disgrace that we use antibiotics as an animal growth promoter in feedlots. A couple months back, Stacy Finns, writing in the San Francisco Chronicle, noted that uh, Assemblyman Kevin Mullen from San Diego withdrew some proposed legislation he had that would ban the sale of meat and poultry fed on medicinally important antibiotics for the purpose of just fattening up the livestock. Turned out he didn't have enough support by legislators. Mullen rescinded AB 1437 on the day that it was supposed to go to the State Assembly's Committee on Agriculture for review. A spokesman said that, a spokesman for Mullen said that, um, He'd gotten an early heads up from members and staff of the Agricultural Committee that the bill in that in its current form wouldn't fly. And this was the second such antibiotic bill to be shut down in California where there are strong poultry and beef lobbies. Noted Stacy Finns, it's a common practice in some livestock sectors to regularly feed animals antibiotics to help them grow fatter faster and as a prophylactic against illness and death, especially when they're housed in crowded conditions. She notes that last year... As we reported, the U.S. FDA announced it would begin curbing the use of some antibiotics in livestock for non-therapeutic use. They instituted a three-year voluntary program with 26 pharmaceutical companies agreeing to phase out the use of antibiotics for growth promotion in livestock produced for meat. Well, that's big of them, isn't it? We did like the special to the Bee op-ed piece by Roberto de Vogli and Garo Manjikian, which we'll quote from. The story of medicine is one of progress and hope. That's why it's so disturbing that medicine in one critical way is getting ever closer to taking a giant step backward. Antibiotics are losing their effectiveness, and the manner in which livestock and poultry are raised on many large factory farms is part of the problem. California should be at the forefront of protecting public health by ending the use of antibiotics on animals that are not sick. We applaud the legislature for tackling the issue this year, but we're troubled that it is pushing through a bill that will bring little change instead of a measure that would have a real impact. In its recent report on antimicrobial resistance, the World Health Organization warned that a post-antibiotic era in which common infections and minor injuries can kill far from being an apocalyptic fantasy, is instead a very real possibility for the 21st century. Now, we doctors have been trained to use antibiotic cautiously and sparingly, but uh, (laughs) they have no such compunction over in the livestock industry. To quote from the piece, doctors are careful about prescribing an antibiotic. However, such caution does not always exist on large livestock and poultry operations. When factory farms discovered that their animals would grow fatter faster when receiving antibiotics, many began putting antibiotics in the daily feed of their healthy animals. They note antibiotics are given to these animals to prevent future illnesses rather than to just treat current illnesses. Well, no, actually, gentlemen, the fact is they act as a growth factor for reasons that are incompletely understood. 
They go on. The result of this near-constant exposure to antibiotics, bacteria are quickly mutating to form resistance. The more that bacteria are exposed to a drug, the faster this happens. And once resistance develops, the problem spreads rapidly as bacteria reproduce in minutes and swap resistant genes with each other. The authors then cite uh, the, the bill, Assembly Bill 1437 by Assemblyman Kevin Mullen, which would have banned the sale of meat in California if antibiotics were used, noting that the bill did not get out of its first policy committee. Currently on the table is State Bill 835 by Senator Jerry Hill that would simply put into law weaker FDA guidelines that were announced last year. Yes, SB 835 would ban the use of antibiotics for growth promotion, but it would leave open a glaring loophole. Many of the antibiotics used for growth promotion are also used for disease prevention, making the bill simply a label change for the pharmaceutical industry. This crap has to stop. And speaking of the pharmaceutical industry, there's a lot of controversy about this new drug for hepatitis C, Sovaldi, known in an opinion piece in U.S. Today. It will save money for our healthcare systems in the long run. The reason it won't save a lot of money in the short run is the drug costs $84,000 for a year's treatment. But it does appear to be a legitimate cure for hepatitis C. Sounding off about the price of pharmaceuticals, this, uh, another opinion piece in USA Today asked, why do drug makers charge so much? And they answer the question by saying, because they can. The opinion piece notes that since the early 1990s, the median price of new cancer drugs has risen eightfold, from about 1200 a month to more than 9700 a month. The main reason the industry demands such prices is because it can. They note that the market for treating deadly diseases is unmoored from the pricing constraints that affect other products from cars to computers. Often they note there is no competition. And yes, we've talked about in this program many times about how the complete disconnect from market economics is a major reason why we have crazy healthcare costs in this country. Note the piece, patients and their loved ones, desperate for a few precious months of life, want the drug regardless of the price. Usually they're not the ones footing most of the bill. Medicare and private insurers are. Insurers or doctors who balk at the sky-high prices risk being branded for rationing life and death. The most off-sided rationale for high prices is that they reflect the costs of research, development, and government approval, pegged by the industry as an average of $1.3 billion per drug. But in a recent article for the AARP Bulletin, it was argued that the real figure is closer to $125 million. But still, $125 million per drug? Or perhaps $1.3 billion? They note that in a few cases, doctors have fought back against outrageous markups. In 2012, when the colon cancer drug Zaltrap came on the market at 11000 a month, Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York decided not to use it. Within weeks, Zaltrap's maker began cutting the price. Today, it's 4300 a month. Now, is there any evidence that um, our regulatory agencies are stepping forward to perhaps do something about this? Either by unleashing more market forces and allowing, you know, some competition between the pharmaceutical industries, or just telling them they can't do it? Well, we're not seeing any evidence for it. In other pharmaceutical news, uh, it turns out that they've done a study on niacin, which has long been used to lower cholesterol. And the New England Journal of Medicine concluded that, uh, well, perhaps it's um, no better than using the other 
statin-type drugs by themselves. Yes, apparently if you're on statins, then you add niacin, you don't, you don't do any better. Of course, we've often raised the question here, if you exercise more and ate a better diet, would everyone need to be on statins? We suspect not. I mean, some people would be, no doubt about that, but uh, well, as we talked about, there's an epidemic going on of obesity in the United States of America and actually around the world. And with obesity, related as it is to not enough exercise and too much fatty food, and perhaps too much sugar, one's cholesterol tends to get out of whack. You know, talking about diet, especially when we live here in California where there's so much fresh produce available, it's, it's unfortunate that we, we don't eat better. And I do mean we when I say that, but I sometimes mean me. Because, you know, eating fresh fruits and vegetables is sometimes given their perishable nature, a little bit harder than eating stuff that's got a better shelf life. A lot of people figure they're going to make up for this deficit by just taking vitamins. But um, the evidence has been coming in for quite some time that vitamins are just not at all what they're cracked up to be. To quote from an excellent briefing paper in the Week magazine from their July 18th issue of this year, in answer to the question, are vitamins good for you, they noted that in the modern world, the abundant supply of a wide variety of foods makes it possible to satisfy virtually all nutritional needs by eating a healthful, balanced diet rich in vegetables, fruit, and protein sources. But based on the idea that more of a good thing is better, companies now sell Americans $12 billion worth of vitamins. We should note, as we have before, that a recent long-term study of more than 400,000 people concluded that, quote, most vitamin supplements have no clear benefit, unquote, and warned that excess vitamin E and beta-carotene may weaken the immune system's ability to kill cancer cells. Now, it's, it's not a clear case that we, you know, don't benefit from vitamins. The fact of the matter is a lot of Americans don't eat a balanced diet, and they're deficient in at least some nutrients. Epidemiologist Gladys Block was quoted as saying, you're not getting any of these micronutrients from Coke and Twinkies. And a 2012 study of 14,000 men found that a daily multivitamin did reduce the risk of cancer by 8%. But most nutritionists still maintain that good food is the best source of vitamins. Food contains thousands of phytochemicals, fiber, and more that work together to promote good health. And that can't be duplicated with a pill. Response to the question, when did vitamin use take off? They noted that supplements have long been around, since the 30s, in fact. Dr. Dean Adele used to talk on his radio program about how his college education was paid for by vitamins. His family was in the business. He, by by the way, would say, "Eh, I might take a vitamin if I think about it. Go to the magazine, but their popularity exploded with the 1970 publication of the bestseller, Vitamin C and the Common Cold. Its author, the renowned chemist and Nobel laureate Linus Pauling, urged people to take 3 grams of vitamin C daily or 50 times the recommended daily allowance. He promised that taking gargantuan amounts of vitamin C would prevent not only colds but cancer and enable people to live to be 150. Because of his prestige, people trusted him and within a few years, 50 million Americans were taking his advice. At least 15 studies have shown that vitamin C doesn't prevent the common cold, but Pauling stubbornly denied the evidence and went on to champion megavitamins. Their final alarming question, is the industry regulated? They note, barely 
Under the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, all supplements, including minerals, medicinal herbs, protein powder, and apparently caffeine, were were categorized as food rather than drugs. As a result, supplement manufacturers can sell their products without proving their safety so long as their labels don't claim to prevent or treat disease. Critics see the law as a gift to the industry won by relentless lobbyists. And with this attack by Robert Lustig, we started off uh, this the show with attacking the spokespeople for the sugar industry. I did have to chuckle at the current edition of Forbes magazine out, which um, chronicles America's richest families. I don't know about the accuracy of this, since Bill Gates is widely uh, acknowledged to be you know, the richest man in the world, and his family somehow doesn't make the list. I wonder about the accuracy of this, uh, this tally of America's richest families, because I think Bill Gates is up there somewhere, isn't he? But he's not on the list. Anyway, they list 179 families worth at least a billion dollars. Surprisingly, the Kennedys, by the way, are only worth a billion The Mars family of candy bar fame, by contrast, is worth $60 billion. And and not to be overly cynical, because I am a big fan of chocolate myself, the real kind, not this milk chocolate they sell here in America that Miss McMillan eats. But despite my fondness for this stuff, when I read about all these studies that are showing that chocolate does all these great things for your health, I I do have to wonder about some of that industry-sponsored research. Some of it, in fact, done right here at UCD. Personally, I hope anything that tastes that good is good for us on some level, but I don't know. Uh, They made a big deal about resveratrol, no doubt due to industry-sponsored research, noting that um, this substance, an antioxidant found in grape skins, certain berries, and dark chocolate, might not be responsible for the comparatively low rates of heart disease and cancer in many European communities where red wine is heavily consumed. So yeah, I mean, chocolate, red wine, you get a lot of resveratrol, that's going to really help you out. Well, after a study, they concluded that the suspected health benefits of red wine, etc., may be exaggerated. These study participants' urine levels of resveratrol apparently didn't seem to influence whether they got cancer or heart disease. A Johns Hopkins researcher, Richard Semra, told ScienceDaily.com that the thinking was that certain foods are good for you because they contain... Resveratrol. We didn't find that at all. This research suggests that Americans who spent $30 million on supplements of resveratrol are probably wasting their money. And a final item, if it's, if it's not clear whether certain supplements or vitamins or antioxidants, you know, may benefit you, one thing that we're sure doesn't benefit you are medical implants of dubious quality. Under the headline, Suit Cites Fake Spinal Surgery Parts, July 19th, Sacramento Bee, piece by Jeremy B. White, is probably worth quoting from. Starts by noting that bribed surgeons implanted counterfeit spinal hardware into the backs of potentially thousands of patients as part of a vast scheme overseen by Dr. Michael D. Drobot, the former hospital executive who, as part of a plea deal, admitted to bribing indicted California Senator Ron Calderon, according to a new lawsuit. The federal case against Calderon, who'd been suspended from the state Senate, includes charges that the Montebello Democrat accepted money to to try and preserve workers' compensation rules that helped Drobot. 
In the years leading up to being indicted for fraud, DeBroat was a prolific donor to California Democrats. What a surprise. The piece notes that while Calderon's case remains unresolved, Drobot has struck a plea deal in which he admitted to funneling bribes to Calderon. He also acknowledged overstating the price of medical implants for which he sought reimbursements and paying kickbacks to doctors and marketeers who brought patients to his hospitals. It's one of the patients who's suing the doctor's hospital medical device distributors. It's Mary Cavalieri, underwent multiple spinal surgeries at Drobot's Pacific Hospital and said knockoff devices were inserted into her spine. Cavalieri's suit includes lurid details about bribes, the purveyors of allegedly fake screws and plates paid to surgeons. According to the suit, a device distributor plied doctors with cash, sports memorabilia, and free air travel that came with some onboard entertainment. This is some pretty disturbing stuff. I certainly hope they look into this thoroughly and that people who did wrong get thrown in jail. And I hate to end on that disturbing note, so let me just cite something a little more uplifting. A piece from a couple years ago noting that uh, doctor groups were fighting overuse of medical tests and treatments. This came from an article by Ricardo Alonso Zaldivar, which noted that in April of 2012, nine medical societies representing nearly 375,000 physicians challenged the widely held perception that more health care is better. They released lists of tests and treatments that their members should no longer automatically order. Forty-five items listed included most repeat colonoscopies within 10 years of the first such test, early imaging for most back pain, brain scans of patients who fainted but didn't have seizures, and antibiotics for mild to moderate sinus distress. And the piece does note the valid criticism that... um, up until now, the healthcare system in the U.S. has rewarded doctors for volume. Now the focus is shifting to paying for results. But anyway, if you think medicine is a science and not an art, you've been misinformed. That does it for today's program. I'm Douglas Abbott. You're listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next week at the same time. Oh, 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 oh,